Hi there, my name is Michael Harris. Welcome to Falling Up Radio. We've got a really amazing show today. We're going to dive right into it. Today's show is going to be all about alcoholism and addiction. Now, some of the people, some of you listening right now, may be affected by that personally. Maybe you're sober, maybe you're in recovery right now, or maybe you know somebody that, that um, a family member or, or friend that you're concerned about, or perhaps you're, you're even sometimes concerned about your own drinking. But, um, you know, part of falling down, getting up, and the idea and, and the book, Falling Down, Getting Up right up there, um, is all about just that, about uh, recovery and sobriety and really finding a new way to live our life. So I brought in a, a really a national expert now in alcohol and, and addiction to help us break down what's going on in our society today um, with alcoholism and addiction and what steps people are taking to really get sober and to recover and to have a better life. And at some point too, we'll, we'll get into his story a, a little bit as well. Um, so I, I wanna welcome our guest. Robert Veter is a certified recovery coach. Previous to that, he, he was working for uh, some treatment, a treatment center for a number of years. He has a health science degree with a concentration in substance abuse counseling from Brockport College. He's a uh, addiction therapist. He's really got quite a life. He's very passionate about sobriety and recovery. So welcome to the show, Robert. I'm glad you could be here today and and take the time out today to be here. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And you know, like we talked before, I really want to jump into uh, what alcoholism and addiction is. And I wrote down um, just a few statistics that, that I could find online about it. Granted, that they may not be totally accurate, but I think it gives a pretty good picture of what's going on in the world today uh, surrounding you know, all these problems. It's estimated that there are 200 million plus active alcoholics in the world today. 200 million. And there's something like 15 to 20 million right here in the United States. And 25% of those aged over 18 binge drink in the last month, which is a real interesting statistic because it all says three quarters of the total cost of alcohol misuse is related to binge drinking. And I've got some more statistics, and, and, and perhaps we'll, we'll get into that too. But just this idea, Robert, that three-quarters of the cost of alcohol misuse is binge drinking. Yeah. Now, as a sobriety coach, as a recovery coach, and an addiction therapist, what do you see and what have you seen in your practice around that? Do you think binge drinking is really that big of an issue? I think people don't see it as an issue because because so much of their life is uh, high functioning, right? So so they go home, they go to work, they pay their bills, they, you know, have their lives. And then on occasion, they, they binge drink and that and, and, and so they, they see that as a, a chemical vacation, you know, um, 
And, and so that's not really a problem because nobody got hurt during that episode, you know? Uh, so, so I, I think it would be probably an, an untapped problem. We don't really consider that a problem because we're not talking about physical dependence, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, do you think that binge drinking is more common in say college students or do you think it's common just throughout society? It's, it's, it's part of our culture for college students, unfortunately. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's what the story I was raised on and probably maybe yourself it was raised on when I, when I was growing up is like, eventually you make it through high school and high school's fun and you join teams and you get involved in your community and, then you move off to someplace else and then the party begins for the next four years, you know, and, and, and that's what college is supposed to be, you know, um, and, and, and that's a, a, a hard story, right? Because, uh, because of all the damage it's doing on college campuses. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, at, at some point, um, I mean, I, I didn't go to a college campus. I, I did some community college, um, but I know lots of people that went to college that maybe drank and partied all the all the time, and um, you know, not just the weekends, but but every day or whatever. But they got out of college, they got a job, and it was kind of over. They kind of mature out of it, right? Yeah. Now, yeah. In, in alcoholism, it just it seems like once you go down that road, you're going to have a problem. But for some reason, people don't. Yeah, and. And I'm not really, you know, this was part of the reason I went to school to study this was I wanted to understand exactly what was happening there because um, that it, it was never the case for me. I never had um, a point in my life that I could point to and sort of say that was normal drinking, normal substance use, uh, you know, whatever that is. I, I, I had always um, abused substances and always when I would take the cap off of a bottle or something, I'd never, I would never replace the cap. I didn't need that anymore. Mm -hmm. So I didn't understand why friends that I had partied with when I was younger could do that, could, um, you know, go to college, party with me the way I did and then just stop, you know? And, uh, and so I wanted to understand that process. What I learned is there's not a, there's not a lot of good research about this. Um, uh, studying, a drug and alcohol misuse um, is very new we're, we're, in our culture. It's less than a hundred years old. We have, we don't, we just don't have a lot of good research on it. So, so we're learning a lot right now, which is good. You know? Yeah. So like, would, would you say though, that the majority of the individuals that you worked with that came into treatment or that you work with one-on-one -on -one, um, have been binge drinkers or just steady drinkers or, I mean. No, I would say that the majority of people that I end up working with in treatment um, are, are at a point of physical dependence where uh, it's almost, almost hard to uh, ignore anymore, you know? So, so, so there are levels of treatment where people, you know, get in trouble, they get involved with the legal system uh, as a result of a, you know, drinking and driving, or they, they did something, you know, heinous or stupid while, while they were under the influence and they go for an evaluation and within that evaluation, they'll diagnose them as having maybe a mild alcohol use disorder, mild substance use disorder. And at that point they'll refer them to treatment, but it'll be almost like an introduction to treatment. They'll go to maybe 10, 12 sessions of treatment versus like six to 12 months of treatment, you know? Yeah. And, and most of that will be educational and it'll, and the point of it kind of is to say, 
that you're on this path and you have some decisions you have to make at this point, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I reflect back uh, some, I mean, I haven't had a drink since 1988. 1988. Um, so it, it's been a while. And in my teens and 20s, no, I was pretty wild. And, you know, I was pretty consistent with my use. And at the same time, every time I got into trouble, right. it was because I was binge drinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like I may have been going along like this drinking and then, you know, one night maybe like this. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The same was like I didn't get in trouble every time I drank, but every time I got in trouble it was because I was drinking. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and then now that um, – I'm sober, you know, I, I look back at that and, and other people that, that I know that, that are sober in, in recovery. And I would say the vast majority of them were binge drinkers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of the, our society, it seems like, almost celebrates the idea of binge drinking. Well, let's work five days a week and then on the weekend, let, let's go out and have a big party. Definitely. Alcohol is used for everything, right? Of like, I, I just got a new job, you know, I must have a drink. I, I just lost yeah. my job and I should drink. <laughs> you know? no, let's have a drink. It's Tuesday. Let's have a drink. I just got married. Have a drink. I just got divorced. <laughs> yeah. 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 My, my, my wife and I were discussing this right before this show. Uh, she's funnily um, much less tolerant of drug and alcohol use than I am, you know? I. I I think I grew up with it being sort of just so normalized and, and she's not in recovery. Uh, she, she doesn't drink. We don't have alcohol in our house, mostly for me. And, and it wasn't something I'm not, I, I don't shun alcohol. It wouldn't bother me if she drank. It was a choice she made, but, uh, I, but now I'm really thrilled that she does that. But she, but one of the things she is, it's funny to watch her. She gets really angry about how normal our culture treats drinking, you know, it's, it's considered so normal that when somebody does have a problem with an addictive substance, we, we consider that abnormal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, when maybe, maybe we're looking at that all wrong. Maybe we should consider it normal that sometimes people have a problem with the substance that, that, that's addictive. You know, it's, yeah. 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 And it, it, it is addictive. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, and you, you may know more about this as well. You know, when I stopped drinking, I also stopped smoking. Smoking yeah, cigarette. yeah, me too. Yeah. And um, I know in relapse, and I, I know some some relapse prevention therapists. One of the things that they talk about is if an alcoholic stops drinking and stops smoking, say they've been sober for ten years, as an example, and they start smoking again, the smoking triggers the same chemicals in the brain that alcohol would. Yeah, yeah, so dopamine, serotonin, uh, yeah, 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 and and the truth is, is that anything triggers dopamine, whether I mean, not just not just substances, right? That's why gambling can become addictive. Uh, you know, dopamine is a reward neurotransmitter, and, and it gets you get a shot of it every time something has a better effect than you expected. You know, so if you go yeah. shopping and you you know find a great sale you know, and you find a hundred dollar t-shirt that costs you six bucks, then you got a good hit of dopamine and chances are you're going to go back there tomorrow. You know, that's just how that's how that works. Is that why they say shopping sometimes cheaper than therapy? Hey, let's go shopping, get some dopamine. 
I, I would like to see the longitudinal study on that, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was looking at, at more, more of these stats that I wrote down, and, you know, alcohol-related um, problems are the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States. That blew me away when I saw that. It doesn't surprise me that it's in the top ten, but third. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious what the other two are because it actually surprises me that it's not the first. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's um, I, I won't get too much into it right now, but I would say food, and I'm a plant-based. Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but certainly, dairy and, and meat are yeah. a huge cause of uh, death in our country. You know, yeah. heart disease and cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And and then it says 10% of U.S. children live with a parent with an alcohol problem. Oh. I was surprised it was only 10%. I would have thought it would be higher. Yeah, that's still, I mean, it's heartbreaking to think of right now as we're sitting here, right? That yeah. right now this is going on, that, that you know, uh, that 10 out of every 100, that's, that's a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. But and, like, like I heard you mention a little while ago, um, your, your wife came up, you know, isn't in recovery and had a fairly normal upbringing. Is that what I heard? Yeah. Yeah. She, you know, as normal as anybody, I mean, yeah. <laughs> right? sure. whatever that is, yeah. whatever normal is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, I, I know myself and other people in recovery. I mean, I used to think my drinking was normal. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't. Well, I, you know, when I tell people like the, even, you know, and this is me getting older, uh, but you know, I grew up as part of the Cheers generation, right? Was we all watched Cheers and MASH and on yeah. Cheers is what, what you did after work was you go to this bar and you hang out and there's Cliff and Norm and the people you loved and, and MASH, you know, they had a, a martini distillery in their tent and, you know, on, when they're not doing surgery, they're telling great jokes and having martinis, you know? And, yeah. and so, so that was sort of my, those were iconic for me, you know? And, yeah. Yeah. And what I wanted to grow up to do. Yeah. So what, what is really today, I mean, in the world today, as far as recovery and treatment, um, there's multiple different options. There's treatment centers, there's Celebrate Recovery, there's 12-step programs, there's, you know. There's Buddhist Days of Refuge Recovery. And, all of them. Yeah, we have Heroin Anonymous and Smart Recovery is a great program. SOS, there, I mean, there's just so much out there. There's personal, private, you know, recovery coaches, what I'm doing now. There's there's uh, outpatient treatment, inpatient treatment, and outpatient detox and medication assistance. Yeah, there's so much. Do you find something is perhaps more effective than something else? No, I think what, what I'm finding and what I'm really liking about the more options is that people are individuals. And so the more options we have, the more likely we are to be able to offer a catered form of recovery that can fit somebody, you know, because for years it was just 12-step recovery. And if, if that didn't, or, or church, and if those two models didn't fit for you, then you're just out of line, you know, and, and now it's becoming more easy to Kind of go. All right. Well, maybe maybe this isn't going to be your gig, but maybe we can find something else that, that a combination of things that'll work. You know, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and so I, I think the way I look at that is, um, you know, for when I was trying to quit smoking, you're, we were talking about cigarettes earlier. Uh, years ago, when I was a smoker, the first thing that came around was nicotine. Do you remember it? Or yeah. nicotine, nicotine gum, right? And 
a lot of people tried it and were like, oh, it tastes terrible, you know, and that's never going to work. And then we had the patch and then lozenges showed up. And then, you know, it's just, and then we had Chantix medications and, and, you know, different injections and everything else, hypnosis. And what we found is the more we had to offer, the more likely we were to be able to help other people quit smoking. Because, and so I'm, so I'm seeing that with, with the recovery community, which I think is great. I, I, I hope it keeps going in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I've seen, and, and you, you may know more about this than, than myself too, is it was Portugal, I believe, that, that did the big study. Yeah, yeah. They, they ended up decriminalizing everything, um, everything essentially. And really the, the study showed, and I think other people like Gabor Monte and some, some other people also discovered the same thing, that much of recovery really is about connection with other people and connecting with ourselves. Now, I thought I was connecting in bars or whatever with other people, but I really wasn't. Yeah. Well, they're talking about that real deep personal connection. And that may be why different groups or 12-step groups have um, been successful to where they have been is because it creates that community of like-minded people. Yeah, it's an instant community. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I mean, like Gabor... I, I don't know if you've read his books or yeah and it, it's truly um, and it's insightful and what uh, Portugal did to decriminalize everything and said instead of criminalizing it we're going to help we're going to provide treatment services right. yeah um, and they I they did, a, they did a whole um, program of job creation for people who were actively using substances that wanted to stop. And so they, they said, you know, we're going to decriminalize everything. Uh, Johan Hari talks about this, um, who's the author of Chasing the Scream, but he, he has a phenomenal TED talk about this, uh, where he says, you know, they, they created, they said, what we're going to do is create jobs for people who, who are actively using, well, the government's going to help fund those jobs and we're going to get people, give people a reason to get out of bed every day, you know? And, and, um, and that has uh, had a huge impact on Portugal. I think that um, active drug use was down like 50%, which was, was insane. Cause I think he said, we're like 1% of, of the population was at, was using um, heroin, you know? So, mm. so, so nobody, and the thing he says that I really like was nobody, who was part of the old system wants to go back, you know? And so they got rid of the guilt, they got rid of the shame. They still offer um, treatment and, co you know, uh, other therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that. But yeah. yeah. Mostly they just created a way for people to want to get out of bed. And I think those of us in the recovery community, that's the discovery we all kind of make along the way, right? Is that I had, I, 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 I tell people in the rooms and 12 step rooms that I, I don't, um, because of my belief system, I don't really have what I consider a higher power what I needed for myself was a higher purpose. I needed to get out of, out of bed for something other than my addiction and my depression and my uh, isolation every day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, one of the other things I discovered, which I a little skeptical about is the national Institute of health had a statistic that one third of alcoholics recover. Uh huh? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm actually always skeptical about sure. <laughs> sure. I, I don't know how they do the studies and, and I'm never, I'm, I can never seem to find access to those studies. Yeah. And so, uh, 
and 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 I don't know what we're deciding recovery is. Are we saying um, they maintain abstinence, you know, or they maintaining long-term abstinence, and are they recovering from just their substance of choice? I, I just I always want more information. So that might be true. I just I'm not I, you know my skepticism is more about like what are we how are we defining our terms, you know? Yeah, and I, and I think I've, there was also a statistic that said that Alcoholics Anonymous suggested it was 10%. Yeah. But again, it's, I, I, I don't know. Who's doing those studies, you know? <laughs> It'd have to be self-report, right? And, yeah. and uh, you know, and again, who, who, are you, uh, who are you interviewing for those studies? I, nobody's ever come up to me after a meeting and said, hey, can you come be part of the study? So, yeah. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I just don't know. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to... If, if you're willing, I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about your story because your story is so powerful. And um, that's how I, I really first found out a, l a little bit about you is uh, seeing your story somewhere. And it was just like, wow, this is really profound. This is somebody that, that's been there, done that, and ha has come back to really be of service now to the world and to helping other alcoholics and, and addicts find their road to recovery. Um, so may, maybe tell the, the listeners a little bit about your story and what happened and, and how it really got to where you are today that you're, you are now doing this type of work in the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, so before I start, I, I really want to say I've been, thinking about this a lot lately because this because I've told this story a lot and I used to not be able to do it without breaking down sobbing but it's been a, you know I've been sober about 16 years now and and I've told this story a lot so sometimes I feel like I might come across as less emotional than I am I I spend every minute of my day thinking about um uh what what the event that finally got me sober I, that will never go away it'll always be part of me and so uh I, I want people to understand that um, going in, but I had, uh, you know, I won't go through the whole thing. I, I had grown up, um, you know, in a pretty good middle income neighborhood with parents who loved me and were involved, you know, um, uh, and I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol, but I guess what most people do about, you know, 14 or 15 when uh, I was in high school. And, uh, and not for like trying to fit in, which is, I think, sort of the story we always tell. But mostly I was just curious. I heard these things could have really neat effects on you. And I wanted to be able to experience that. And so I, was, I tried a lot out of curiosity. And uh, like I said, for me, when I would use, um, it was almost like the world felt normal. And a lot of times when I'm talking to people about recovery, I'll exp I, I explain specifically that, that um, for me, sobriety has always felt abnormal. And, and uh, these days I have a great life, but it took a long time of practicing how to be in the world without being under the influence of substances, you know? Yeah. Um, so I had uh, started about them and I always used pretty heavily. Uh, and I had uh, at a pretty early age been taken to my first 12 step meeting. And I know a lot of people don't like their first meetings. I actually really thought it was a, I was really enamored with it. I was really, um, uh, I thought it was really neat. Uh, so back then, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was a bunch of 
old guys who like chain smoke cigarettes, drank too much coffee. And if you wanted the non-smoking section, you had to lay on the floor, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but they, they were like, you know, this was down South. These were like old farmers and truck drivers and, you know, just rough, rough men. And they were talking about like their feelings, you know? Yeah. And so, so that was pretty, pretty uh, neat. And I, you know, I, I, thought, well, I'm going to try and do this. And I went to probably two more meetings. And after that, I, didn't, I just sort of dropped out. I was young and I didn't really have a lot of good reasons for, for uh, staying involved in this program. And uh, I, you know, went in and out for years. I tried geographic cures. I had um, at one point ended up homeless for a while. You know, I, just things just kept getting worse, which is sort of the trajectory that untreated uh, substance use disorders do, right? That's one of the reasons we define it as, as a disease is that we know if it's left untreated, it follows a predictable path, and mine was. Um, I had started doing what we put a call maturing out in my 20s, which was that I had stopped being willing to try new substances, and I came up with sort of rules about my substance use. So I would only take hallucinogens at the changing of the seasons or things like this, just stupid, you know, whatever uh, rules. Um, that, I, that I never adhered to. I just made them up for myself. And um, Well, Adam, let me ask you right, right here. When did you know that, that you had a problem? Did you, did you always have a problem? Or did like one day when you were 20 years old or whatever age you said, you know, I may have a problem? Uh, I had met, you know, I had wrecked a car uh, when I was, I think, 18 or 19. I'm not sure how old I was, you know. And... Um, a friend of my parents who was in a 12-step community had asked to speak to me and he, and I still remember the guy, he was a great guy, and, but he was very old school, like, you know. So I met him with him in this office and he goes, do you think you might have a problem with alcohol? And I remember being like, I was so young and I was like, well, not, no, you know. And, and he's like, well, do you think putting a car in a ditch at 40 miles an hour is normal behavior, you know? And, uh, and he was the one that took me to my first meeting and when they shared in that room, I recognized myself, even though they were, you know, 20, 30, 40 years older, you know, they talked about what uh, alcohol use disorders looked like and ways to recognize it in yourself. And, and I sort of fit their criteria back then, which was things like if a full liquor cabinet gives you kind of a nice warm feeling of security, then, then that you might have a problem, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was starting to see myself in that, you know, and I also knew that, uh, that I would always drink until it was all gone. You know, there was never, you know, so, so, so I, yeah, I guess I had always kind of known and I was trying to figure out ways of making it work in the world, you know, which was, so I worked a lot. I was a hard worker. I showed up at jobs, you know, um, and uh, I had a good work ethic that, that devolved over time. But, but, you know, for the most part, I thought I did. And so in my twenties, I started to, uh, mature out. I got in a relationship with a woman and we were together for about nine years. And then um, we got into an argument one night and she left. And I think, uh, and I never did get closure on why she left. It wasn't like a, there was no, there wasn't anything violent going on there. Um, I think she was just tired of me and my drinking and she wanted her own life, you know? And, uh, and so a friend of mine calls this his buy-in moment, you know, he says like, uh, there's a moment in our disease where you just kind of you hang everything else up and you go, well, now, now I don't have any excuses. And working clinically, I've watched this for like somebody does, we, we do a social intervention that we think would have 
um, an impact on, on them and they'd want to stop, right? So a, a woman with a child, CPS gets called, they come in, they say, we're going to take your child away unless you get into a program and sober up. They take her child away. And what we think would happen is somebody would go like, oh, I'll stop drinking. I'll stop using drugs. I, my, I care about my child more, you know, and they do. So, so I don't want that misunderstood. But what happens is now we've introduced trauma. We've given them isolation. We've given them all the excuses in the world to use and they go off the chain, you know. And so that was exactly what happened with me was uh, was all of a sudden I was alone and I didn't have any reasons to stay sober anymore at all. Yeah. Things got really bad for, for uh, you know, quite a while. And I tried a bunch of things. I tried moving again to uh, I, I tried finding a different girlfriend. I tried, you know, all kinds of stuff and nothing worked. And um, I'll fast forward a little bit. What, what finally ended up getting me sober was on November 1st of uh, 2003. Uh, I, it was the day after Halloween. So, you know, Halloween, you, you know, is a, you know, if you have alcoholism, Halloween is sort of where everybody else acts like you for a night, you know? Yeah. And, and so I'd, I had been out late and I woke up the next day and uh, I was feeling sick and, uh, and I wanted a cure. So I went to my local bar and I had ordered a cup of coffee and they had just run out of coffee. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning or something. So I had ordered a beer and, and, uh, and that starts my cycle. But even there, I was kind of keeping it tame, I thought, you know, so I was, I, I wouldn't say I was like slamming drinks all day. I was kind of nursing drinks all day. So I never felt like, and my tolerance was very high. So I, I didn't feel like I was very intoxicated. I felt like I was recovering from a hangover and sort of had a nice warm buzz, you know, and uh, I went to multiple bars that day in part because that's something you do if you're drinking a lot is you don't want people to know how much you're drinking. So, so I went to a second bar. I spent some time there and had some more drinks and shots and was warming up. And the last bar that evening, it was about 830 and I was going home. And I decided I was just tired and I just wanted to go home, which is about three miles from where, where I was. Um, and I had gotten into an Econoline work van. And what I didn't know was a car accident had happened uh, prior to me leaving that parking lot. So one car had run a stop sign and T-bone into another car and somebody had been hurt in that initial accident. And so a bunch of good people stopped to do what, what good people do. They stopped to help, you know, and uh, they saw the accident and some kids, I'm not sh completely sure about the sequence of the story because I, I never read the discovery, but this is my understanding is some kids stopped and they had tried to help by pulling this guy out of the car and a nurse and her husband had two of their kids in the backseat of their car were coming back from maybe a football game and had uh, seen this and stopped and got out and, and, you know, said, don't move this man until 911 shows, shows up and, uh, so but a series of people had stopped in, in the highway and 911 had been contacted. And um, unfortunately, I came over the hill before before anybody else. And so there was a crowd of people in the middle of the road. I was driving a van. I couldn't stop. And I tried, you know, um, going into the oncoming lane. There was no traffic coming that way. There were cars parked along my lane because of the people that had stopped. And uh, maybe that was something I could have done. I, I don't know. But I ended up... Um, slamming on the brakes at the last second and I didn't know what had happened. I was thrown out of my seat. Uh, the airbags had gone off. I didn't have a seat belt on, of course. Right. And, uh, and so when I got out of the car, there were people screaming, there were bodies, you know, on the road. And, uh, um, 
and I wanted to help and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know what had happened exactly. You know, I just didn't know. I didn't understand. And, uh, and so I went to somebody and, and sort of stupidly started screaming, you've just been in an accident. And, um, uh, he had, he died that night. So I went over, I uh, sat next to the side of the road and, uh, I just started rocking. The police came along and they asked me to take a breathalyzer, which I refused because there's something drunk people tell each other in bars is don't ever take a breathalyzer, which didn't matter. They threw me in the back of the car and took me down to a local ATC center treatment center and said, we have a warrant for your blood here. Um, if you, you can give it to us willingly or we'll step down at the table and take it. And, so I, of course, gave it to him. Uh, and about that time, my system sort of started going into shock. I started losing the ability to talk. Um, I, you know, I started developing a bunch of series of twitches. And they took me to local county jail and put me on suicide watch. I, I couldn't even today tell you for how long. I don't know if, I mean, I think it was days. And, um, and uh, you know, so... I had a, you know, that was my sort of dark night of the soul, I guess is what you'd call it. And I had decided that I, if I was going to kill myself, I was going to do everything else first. Like I, if they had, I didn't know if they put me in prison for the rest of my life. I had no idea. I don't know. On the way out of the treatment center, they had said, I had heard on the TV in the background that an alleged drunk driver had struck and killed um, six people. Hmm. And, uh, and I thought, well, that couldn't have been me. They just don't know what's happened at that accident yet because they don't know about the previous accident or something like that, you know. And then later I was charged with six counts of involuntary manslaughter and uh, two counts of assault with a deadly weapon uh, inflicting serious bodily injury. Two, two people were really severely hurt and, um, and um, not killed. And that the time... Uh, sort of prison time for that is that involuntary manslaughter actually doesn't carry that much time. Um, it, it's like 13 months, you know. So every time 13 months would go by while I was incarcerated, it would be another life, you know, that I would reflect on. And uh, so I was given, I was sentenced to eight and a half to 11 years in a North Carolina state prison. You know? And um, I started uh, going to, you know, whatever they had to offer in there. If they offered 12-step programs, I went to, you know, all of them, anything they offered. And uh, I took this was, this was in prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're terrible meetings in prison. I mean, I, I don't want to sound like they – it was hard. It, it, it's hard to work a good program in prison um, because so many people are mandated to attend them. So the meetings I would go to would very typically have about 60 people in them. And about six of us actually thought we needed to be there, you know. And so that leaves, you know, 54 people that are playing cards, singing, rapping, talking, writing letters, you know. And so, so the meetings are, are kind of tough, you know. But, uh, but uh, I will say that I, I, met some, I met some of the greatest people I've met, greatest men I've ever met in my life in prison. There were some great men in there that had acknowledged what they had done and just want now today to do better in the world I, you know I, we still stay in touch with some some of them you know so it, it i mean it's obviously a very tragic example of really the effects of alcoholism in our yeah. society yeah. you know there's commercials on tv and don't let friends you know drive drunk and you know all that kind of stuff and 
and I've stopped people from drinking now that I'm sober. When um, before I was that, I didn't stop anybody. Nobody could stop me either. Right. right. Um, but at what point did you decide? Was it in prison or was it after prison? At what point did you decide that you were going to uh, become an addiction therapist and you know help other people and perhaps stop other similar tragedies and deaths from from happening as a result of somebody else's drinking? I mean, what, yeah. where did that epiphany come? I think I hoped to imprison. Um, so they they offered classes in prison. You could take classes. It's not like what people think, where you um, can just go to prison and say, like, I think I'll do a master's in social work or something like that. You know, they offered I could get associate's degrees in horticulture or culinary arts. And because I was at this one prison for um, so long, I got associate's degrees in both. So I used to joke that if if I got another associate's degree, they'd hit me with habitual. You know. Um, yeah. So after that, I was pretty sure that the only places that would hire me, I thought, well, I could, I could do something in culinary. You can have a, uh, you know, a, a felony background and still get a job. So I did an apprenticeship in the kitchen for a while, um, for years, uh, thinking that I, I would probably do something with the culinary arts. I was hoping to go back to school. I had uh, met my now wife um, a few years, uh, many years before I got out, but we, there was nothing romantic at that point. Um, and she was uh, finishing, she, she's a periodontist, so she was finishing a postdoctoral residency um, while, uh, while I was locked up. I was finally moved to minimum custody and she started traveling to see me every weekend. That's a much longer story. But because, because of her education, she started saying, you know, this is something you can do. This is possible. You can go to school. And I didn't know that that would be a possibility. You know, I, I just didn't know. And uh, the more I looked at it, the more I, you know, I was very involved in uh, recovery and really passionate about it. And I, and I also noticed that when I would share, people would listen to me, you know, maybe because of my background, maybe because of my recovery, hopefully because of my recovery. And I wanted, like I said earlier, I just wanted good science. I wanted to know, I wanted to understand addiction. I really did, you know. I still do. I, I'm still always kind of learning about that. Uh, because I think there's some really fascinating things about the brain that, with addiction, you know, that, that tells us a lot about human behavior, you know. So, so I just uh, had really hoped to do that. So right after I got out, I was... Uh, I'm smiling because I, I, I was released to Charleston, South Carolina. My wife was in her last uh, semester of her postdoctoral residency, and I was going to a community college there. And we had arranged it so that um, I missed the first week of school because I was being released, you know, in, in another state. And so she had contacted them and not telling them my story, just said, we're in the process of moving from North Carolina to South Carolina. Um, I'm going to miss the first few days of classes. Is there anything I should know? And we never got a response. And so when I showed up at my first day of class, uh, the very first class I was at, they came to me and they said, uh, so um, there's a quiz today about last week's class. And, and, and so I uh, failed it miserably. <laughs> you know? and, and then my second class I went to, I'd been locked up for you know, quite a while. And, and the teacher said, so you're going to submit all of your homework through uh, D2L and that'll be on Dropbox. 
right? And I went home and I just burst into tears and told my wife, oh, there's no way I could do this. You know, there's a, what's a D2L? What's a Dropbox? I have no idea. I didn't know anything. anything was saying. I didn't know how to use a computer. I didn't know how to use my phone, you know? And uh, it turned out it was almost like what we were talking about before with convention. It was the best thing I could have done, not only for my recovery, but for getting out, right? It forced me into structure. It forced me into... Um, and to having, having to learn how computers work very quickly, you know, so that I could do my homework. It also forced me to tell people um, my story to some degree. So I had to pull a lot of college professors aside over the, over the years and say, look, here's my story. I don't know how to do this exam online because I was locked up for the past eight and a half years. And so, um, you know, can you help me do this? And so, so it was sort of this forced humility of having to ask, having to admit all the time that I don't know how to do this. Can you show me how? And I, and I still live my life from that point today of like, I, my wife had to set up this call because I didn't know how to do a zoom call, you know? Yeah. 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 But now, now you do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I do. I, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so how long, um, how long has it been since you've really started working in the, in the addiction community and you know, how, how is that going for you today? Yeah. So I graduated in 2015, I think is, I think that's when I graduated and I was hired almost immediately. So there's uh, some gender socialization with this. If you're a male therapist, you can almost guarantee a job. There's just a shortage of them. There aren't any, you know, and specifically with treatment facilities, um, you know, they need them in part because they need, they need men that can monitor toxicology screens. They need somebody that can go in the bathroom with you and stand behind you while you, while you pee, you know? And uh, so I think I was hired I, about two weeks after I got out of school, you know, and I've been working as an addiction therapist um, ever since, you know, I, I love it. I, I love what I do. I love working. I love watching people get better. It's the best. There's just nothing better than that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, there's um, spiritual principles and non-spiritual principles that suggest that when we help somebody else, um, we're kind of getting out of ourselves, so to speak. Yeah. And we're, we're providing service and that those challenges, perhaps, that we've had in, in our lives previously – um, it's almost like by doing this work, it's making amends to ourselves and, and others. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the havoc that, that um, we've created. There, there is no amends I'm ever going to make that's going to that's going to make better what I had done. I mean, it's just not. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I I have a six year old daughter now, and and I'm of course madly in love with her you know and i i um watch her open presents on her birthday and she doesn't know my whole story she knows i was incarcerated she's too young to know why you know uh but i watch her joy in her life and and i'm always overflowing myself with how how amazing that is and how i took that from from I don't know how many people, you know, I mean, right. You know, from their parents, from people that love them, from wives and husbands and uncles and grandparents and friends. And, you know, I mean, how many people, uh, some, I, I can't even count, you know, 
So nothing I do is ever going to make that better. But um, one thing I do offer other people, you know, I had a couple of things. One was that when I was in active use, I remember thinking, like, someday I'm going to get off this couch, right? Someday I'm going to stop doing all this and I'm going to get off this couch and I'm going to go out in the world and I'm going to live a life, you know? And now I always have, I feel like I'm, yeah, I, that, I mean, I'm living a great life. I'm busy all the time, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's a great problem to have, you know, and, uh, and when I meet people early in recovery and I hear their stories and they're, they're always devastating, you know, um, I always think when I'm confronting the guilt and shame, like think how much you're going to help your story is going to help somebody else. Yeah. Uh, if nothing else can be hope, know that, that, that no matter how bad you've been through your use or your addiction, or that, that it's going to help countless other people, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so it's, uh, it's just, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I commend you for the work you're doing today in really choosing recovery because could have gone the other way too. And, um, um, not recovered right yeah you, you've had an opportunity to recover and to help other people do the same thing too so like as a certified recovery coach now really helping people um that choose to is, is to, to get sober and have a better life yeah yeah and, so, and and what an honor they offer offer us when when we're allowed to help right you yeah know? yeah so, so we're, we're getting towards the, the end of our show. And again, like we started out at the beginning of the show, um, you out there that, that are listening, you might be listening on, on Apple or Stitcher. You may be actually watching this on YouTube or on the, on the website. Um, but if you're listening, you know, and you think that you, you, you need some help, I mean, certainly get some help. Pick up the phone. There's national hotlines on the website here. Um, there's a phone number there that, that you can call 24 hours a day in case you need help. Or if there's friends or family that, that, that need help, you know, look at what, what you can do to take care of your, yourself. Um, and I, I want to ask you too, Robert, you know, as a uh, recovery coach, what are maybe three simple things that, that somebody could do um, that are concerned about maybe their drinking that they may be able to, to do even right now to um, find recovery or to find sobriety if that's what they want? Yes. Uh, the hard part is, is not knowing what somebody wants, right? So if I think if you think it might be a problem, then you're probably right, you know? Uh, there, you know, there's lots of great help out there. So you can contact a local treatment facility, you know, and just go through an evaluation, you know, uh, and, and they're trained to sort of look at, look at not how much you're using, but how it's impacting your life. You know, uh, yeah. you know, there's lots of, like we talked about earlier, there's so many other, um, avenues of recovery out there in 12 step communities. You can just go sit in a meeting. Nobody, you know, we're not trying to, trying to convert people to, recovery so you can sit in the back of the room not say anything listen and uh and if you hear yourself in there give it a shot you know um you know uh, there's just a lot of options uh uh i'm trying to think of a good third one i don't know do you have any good ideas for a third thing 
Well, I mean, what, one of the things that I've heard it said too is, you know, maybe um, try not to drink for 30 days. Yeah. See what happens and, you know, see whether you can go 30 days. And, you know, I know some people have said, yeah, oh, I can go 30 days. And three days later, um, they're drinking again. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I, it was harder for me to understand was some, it was, I didn't always drink abusively. Right. So a lot of times I did, you know, sometimes I would go to the bar on the way home and I'd say like, I'm just going to have a couple of beers and I would have a couple of beers and I would go home, which always reinforced, oh, see, it's not really a problem, you know? But then sometimes I would go to the bar and plan on having a couple of beers and I'd wind up in Canada, you know? So, so, so it just didn't, I didn't, I couldn't tell you what was going to happen when I drank. I really didn't know, you know? And, and I would say that, you know, like, the people I meet that don't have alcoholism or other addictions, that never happens to them. They, you know, they, they know how much they're going to drink and then they drink and then they, that's, that's, oh, that's it. You know? So it's like that first drink, you don't know what's going to happen, whether you're going to have one, two or 20. Right. Yeah. yeah. It triggers that biology. Right. And then also, I think just, as a messaging in our country, one thing we need to change, I think, I feel strongly about it, is like, there's just nothing wrong with not drinking. It's, yeah. I, that was my biggest surprise. I go to fish shows and dead shows, and we go to a lot of concerts, and, and I'm always stunned at how many people aren't getting high and aren't drinking. I thought everybody was like me, but it's really not true, you know? And nobody's looking at what you're drinking. Nobody cares, you know? So I don't know. Maybe we need to start re-messaging that and saying it's okay to go out and have a sober night tonight. You know? Yeah, yeah, I I agree. So um, how can somebody, if they're looking for a recovery coach or somebody to maybe help them through this process, um, how can they get somebody get a hold of you? Oh yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, you can email me. My email address is easy. It's a better high at gmail.com. Um, can I share my phone number here? Is that okay? Or you, is uh, whatever you want. And I also want to add, if, if you're listening to this, and um, go to the, the website, the fallingupradio.com website, and look at Robert's page. And on there, too, we, we will have his contact information there. So if, if you want to contact him uh, directly that way, you can do that, too. But, Robert, go ahead and, and give any information yeah, you can, you can call or text me at 585-285-0739, or um, uh, I, I have a blog. I'm, not, I'm a writer as well, but uh, I, I'm not very good at keeping it updated, so I apologize, but it's uh, The Prison Sketches, and that's uh, all I can do what, what the yeah. blog site is. You know? <laughs> yeah, if you look up The Prison Sketches and Robert Beater, you'll find it, I'm sure. So. Sure, sure. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you, you were here today, Robert. And I mean, your, your story is so compelling. And again, I really commend you for um, find, finding your place and finding your service in, in recovery. And, um, you know, after something so tragically happened. And um, unfortunately, so much of that happens on, on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, what, what is 10,000 deaths from alcohol-related car accidents? And I don't think that that number is right either. I think it's higher than that. I think it's much higher than that in the United States. Yeah. 
um, uh, you know, 50% of cirrhosis is alcohol related, um, and so on and so on. And, you know, and for what, right? <laughs> you know, but alcoholism is so entrenched in our society, and we get pretty girls in swimming suits drinking beer on billboards and, yeah. you know, that, that whole fantasy world. There's never a commercial about how many times I spent behind the dumpster. You know, <laughs> they, they just yeah. never show that commercial, right? But I was growing up somewhere. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, again, I, I want um, um, – I really appreciate you being here. And if you are listening uh, – um, I didn't mention that this earlier is my book, uh, Falling Down, Getting Up, uh, right right over here. Uh, and I'll, I'll hold it up here, too, right, right there. You can get this book for free on the website. It was number one in, in recovery. Um, when, when it was released and you can download the, the free ebook in any time, or you can get a uh, actually free printed copy of the book with a, a little bit of shipping. Um, and it talks about uh, recovery and, and alcoholism and maybe some additional ideas on what you can do to get sober. If that's an issue for you, or if you want to perhaps give, give the book to somebody, you know, um, so again, Robert, it's been a, a pleasure. Hold on for, for the other side after uh, we stop here. But do, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners? I don't. I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. You know, I, I, uh, I really appreciate you reaching out to yeah. this opportunity. You know. Absolutely. Um, so again, if, if you're listening, if you need some help, uh, Look at the website. There's some phone numbers there. Maybe find a, a local treatment center or 12-step meeting, and um, you, you'd be surprised about how good of a life you can really have once you know we, we start to to get sober and we we recovered. So, again, have an incredible day. Thank you again, Robert. And um, share this. If everybody else that's listening, share this with anybody that you want. Give it to your friends, family. Post it on social media, whatever. Anything that we can do. And I'm speaking a little bit for Robert, but um, anything that we can do to help somebody else recover and be sober is kind of a good thing. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Robert.